0: Before we start, a quick warning that today's episode contains the use of a racial slur within the context of one of our stories. From the USC Viterbi School of Engineering in Los Angeles.
1: This is Escape Velocity. I'm Dr. Brandi Jones,
0: and I'm Daniel Druhora. Usually, when we think about escape velocity, it's something about rockets.
2: Ignition sequence
0: starts. 25,000 miles an hour. That's how fast a rocket needs to go to break free of Earth's gravity. But in the summer of 2020, the idea of escape took on a whole new meaning. How to escape the influence of something as powerful and invisible as gravity. The Do you think there's
1: racism. systemic racism racism racial racism. Racism. In these next few episodes, we will explore the intersection of race, academia, and STEM. Today's episode, the stories of two pastors' kids from the Midwest who found their way to the City of Angels, the only two black professors to receive tenure in the 115-year history of the USC Viterbi School of Engineering.
0: We start off with Professor Timothy Pinkston electrical engineer, expert in computer architecture, the USC Viterbi Vice Dean for Faculty Affairs. We met him in his home in View Park, a historic black neighborhood in South LA. Well,
1: that's not an accident. He used to live in Santa Monica. He got tired of being viewed with suspicion by his neighbors, so he moved to View Park. 85% black, former home to Ray Charles, Tina Turner, now even a princess.
3: Your Royal Highness Meghan Markle, congratulations to you both. Thank you. Can we
2: start with the proposal
3: and the actual... To
0: understand Timothy Pinkston, you might start with these guys.
3: represents the death and the burial Jesus. He died, the third day he
1: he That's Pastor Harold E. Pinkston Sr., Timothy's dad. And then there's...
3: I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, yes sir, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long, no, because truth crushed the earth will rise again. Yes, sir. How long? Not long.
0: Timothy's dad knew Dr. King very well. They both were assistant pastors at the same church in Boston. Marched together on Selma, and then on Washington. Timothy was there, too, a year before he was born, as he says in his mother's belly.
1: From the beginning, things were challenging for Timothy's family.
3: I was uh, born in the year in which the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed into law, okay? And although I was just a newborn babe in arms and unaware of racism, obviously, my parents feared for our family's lives Uh, in the uh, mountainside New Jersey neighborhood in which we lived, uh, being the only black residents, surrounded by uh, neighbors who, some of which were overt members of the KKK.
0: At age four, Timothy's walking with his parents to kindergarten, and he notices something. This strange 10-foot mile-long wall.
3: My first awareness of racism occurred when my parents explained to me as a young uh, child what was behind the 10 foot walls, uh, 10 foot walled premises that I walked past going and coming uh, to school every day while I was in kindergarten, first grade in Philadelphia, where we had moved to.
1: Behind the walls is the 43 acre campus of Girard College, a private white-only boarding school created by Stephen Girard, one of the four richest men in American history. The school was still segregated in 1968, 14 years after Brown versus Board of
3: Education. Seeing this 10-foot wall building, which I was not permitted to even look into or even have access to, was my first, you know, I guess, uh, becoming aware, realization of the... Uh, the stripping away of, of access and opportunity for persons like me, um, black people, um, uh, that systematic racism that I you know, first came, came into contact with.
1: Soon after, Timothy's family moves to rural Ohio. To be clear, they are the only black family in their town. Hostile neighbors on both sides, one proudly displayed on his front door, no niggers, spicks, or Jews allowed. At age six, his parents gave him the talk how he should behave and interact with white people.
3: And so my parents did not want their children, so I'm the youngest of four, to get lynched. It was a very real possibility in rural, America, rural Central uh, Ohio. And so Growing up, I understood that there are these kinds of viewpoints out there that could be detrimental to my life if I didn't, you know, remain conscious about it in my interactions with people. They said, you know, you should never, uh, in inter- interacting with uh, adult white people, uh, never refer to them by their first name, You know, always be very polite, um, don't come across uh, in a ways that they might might take your confidence or your self-assuredness as being, I'll just say the word uppity, uh, as being something that they don't expect you should be able to act this way uh, in their presence. So the talk is about being cautious, but not being overly cautious to the point of cowardly. And that's the key. You want to disarm, uh, you want to um, De-escalate. You want to uh, not cause, or actually, you want to mitigate racial tensions, but at the same time, not lose your own self dignity and respect.
0: This way of thinking about the world and oneself was ingrained in Timothy's DNA for the rest of his
3: life. In my interactions with faculty, students, staff, people outside of USC, I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm a black man, and that people um, may view me in a way that, uh, you know, stereotype me uh, perhaps again from the prejudices that they may have or their, you know, st- stereotypes that I, uh, you know, might be a threat to them. Uh, and, and so <laughs> when I'm walking down the street, uh, you know, passing by, you know, let's say on campus or anywhere, uh, passing by, you know, white women or, you know, white people, I go out of my way to come across non-threatening, you know, being extra polite and kind uh, or, you know, perhaps looking away or, but I am conscious of of how I might be perceived, um, which which is a burden. It's a burden that, that I, I carry every day as a black man.
1: After two years as the only black family in a more affluent white school district, The lines are redrawn to remove them. Timothy and his siblings must now go miles, further away. They're always the last to exit the bus.
0: Then in high school, 1980, he leads a boycott of the black players from the football team. He and his brother and other black athletes are denied the chance to start, even though they outplay their white peers in practice. The story made the news and was covered in the local Delaware Gazette, Soon after, the coach got fired.
1: In college, at the Ohio State, Timothy saw more effects of systemic racism. Um,
3: I went to Ohio State University in 1981 um, and studied you know, engineering, electro-engineering, and I saw the systemic racism in the effects of it, let's say, in the success, or lack thereof, of my fellow African Americans who and minority students who were in my class you know I of, I was I believe the only African American, I believe the only minority who graduated in my class you know on time, out of dozens who who, uh, who joined me in, in that first year. So again, Timothy
1: fights back at Ohio State he creates a new student group, the Rome Retention honorary Organization to help underrepresented students prepare for engineering courses.
0: At Stanford, as the president of the Black Graduate Student Association, he builds a coalition of student groups to successfully lobby for a multicultural theme house, a safe place for graduate students during a time when racial tensions at Stanford made national news. Now in
1: 1992, Rodney King is beaten by the LAPD. The LA uprising erupts soon after. In 1968, Martin Luther King, Timothy's father's friend, is assassinated, leading to the 1968 riots. Both moments are big turning points for Timothy's family.
3: Here's how he tells it. I, I joined USC in 1993, the fall of 1993, after graduating from Stanford and then having a short postdoc there at Stanford. It's, I think, interesting to note that there were some race riots in 1992 yes. arising from the uh, verdict in the Rodney King beating case. Uh, and it might be interesting to note that just as my father <laughs> was hired <laughs> into uh, you know, a high Wesleyan at the time of some you know, racial tensions and riots and, and actions taken uh, by that academic institution uh, to further diversify its faculty Coincidentally, uh, I was hired at uh, USC a year, within a year's time of the race riots that occurred here at, uh, uh, in, in L.A. Perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not.
1: Timothy became the first African-American tenure-track faculty in USC Viterbi history.
0: Now his father's university in Ohio, Ohio Wesleyan, produced Branch Rickey the baseball executive who helped Jackie Robinson integrate Major League Baseball. This
1: is truly an historic day here in Jersey
3: City. A 27-year-old Negro named Jackie Robinson is playing his first game for the Montreal Royals, the Dodger Farm Club. Robinson steps to the plate. Here's the pitch. Swing a long drive into deep left field.
0: It might be home run, Jackie Robinson. Timothy's not a huge baseball fan, but he can't help but feel some connection with Jackie Robinson.
3: One that I certainly faced, which I'll gladly, and you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say, is the Jackie Robinson syndrome, where you're the first and you realize, if I don't succeed, maybe that destroys it for everybody else who comes behind me.
1: But there's a burden to being the first, right? There's the whole idea of token licensing, which Timothy says USC is not immune to. This idea that, hey, we've done our diversity hire, we've checked that box, now let's go hire who we really want. There's also the service tax, or as Timothy puts it,
0: black tax. That's something that came up in both of our stories.
1: I mean, it's pretty simple. When you've only got one black person or just a few women, a lot more service is going to be asked of them. Join this committee, speak at this event. We need a diverse face for this or that. You're doing all of this extra work for the greater good, and it's not taken into account. It's not valued for promotion purposes. It's a burden, a burden that's placed on a person that's not placed on the majority.
0: And then there's the Timothy Bingston that exists in Olin Hall, the Vice Dean of Faculty Affairs, the George Flager Chair in Electrical and Computer Engineering. But all of that changes when he leaves campus and cross his exposition boulevard.
3: I have experienced <laughs> multiple times while at USC, as a tenured full professor, member of the dean's office, I would say harassed and terrorized <laughs> by the police, uh, by being you know, stopped for nothing other than driving while black.
1: Two years ago, Timothy's at this dinner He's part of this USC Honorary Degree Committee, and they're honoring Charlie Beck, then the LAPD chief. It's a fancy dinner on the USC campus.
3: That evening, as I'm leaving campus around 8.30, 9 o'clock, from that degree, honorary degree banquet, where the chief of police of LA was being honored, (laughs) I'm driving a nice car, Tesla. leaving uh, campus, on exiting, uh, I guess, gate six onto Exposition Boulevard. And uh, so I can make a left turn onto Vermont to come here to my home. And there's a police car that's in the far right lane.
0: The police officer follows Timothy immediately. The LAPD car continues to follow without flashing lights for several turns.
3: So I, I pulled into a driver, uh, a driveway to allow him to pass me. He doesn't pass me, he stops behind me, blocking me now into the parked driveway. At this point, I'm, I realize, okay, this is one of those instances, for some reason this person's curious about me, I don't know why, uh, and I'm sitting there in my car, and in, within a few minutes, the policeman comes knocking on my window with his partner, you know, with his hand on his gun, and I pull down my window, and he asks me, what, what are you doing? I, I'm now sitting here reading my emails. No, no. Wh- I mean, why are we driving all crazy? Uh, I wasn't driving crazy, officer. No, I mean like you, you just turned and you turn again and you turn again. I said, I've done. I'm not. I have not done anything wrong, officer. And I was very tempted to say other than <laughs> driving while black, <laughs> but I didn't say that.
0: Timothy's nice suit, his credentials, his brand new Tesla Model X had one problem.
3: So I'm saying this very calmly, but you don't know how angry I was. So when he was talking to me, I was very upset, but my training kept me to be polite, be courteous, and to not escalate or to cause any kind of racial or any other kind of tension uh, between me and the officer because people die from that.
1: Please, the knee my neck. I can't breathe sick. Uh-huh. Bro, get up, and get in the car, man. I get, will. Get up, and get in the car. I can't move. I've been whiting the whole party, ah, ah,
3: Bro, get up, and get in the car. Mama. Get up get mama, in the
2: car, right. I can't.
1: They say that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Another news cycle, more black deaths, more rhyming. For Timothy, each one builds upon a previous trauma.
3: When incidents like the George Floyd or the Sean Brooks or other kinds of incidents, even if they aren't to the death of of brutality on, of police or just harassment by the police, occur, it brings up these kinds of Traumatic experiences. I would say it's, you know, over the past few weeks I've been going through post-traumatic stress experiencing things that you believe you're experiencing only because of your race, not because you're Timothy Pinkston, and I've done something, you know, to deserve it, but rather because of that component of Timothy Pinkston that some other Timothy Pinkston by the same name, who happens to be a white person, may not and probably does not experience.
0: Now, in the aftermath of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and more recently, Rayshard Brooks, Timothy is feeling it all over
3: again. The stress and trauma that I've been experienced does conjure thoughts in my mind of, you know, protests. <laughs> uh, not a desire to riot to the point of, you know, looting, but of pushing back of standing up and saying enough and you know and that's what's happening all across america it's happening at usc you know it's happening in a lot of different neighborhoods and and across the the, the world you're seeing that as well where people are just saying i'm tired i'm tired of this burden it's, you know of you know, acting a certain way to try to, I wouldn't call it appeasement, but rather de-escalation, disarming, you know, not being the source of tensions. Uh, I'm tired of it. You know, it's enough. You know, I'm just gonna be myself, I'm gonna be just like the person next to me who doesn't have to go through that, who doesn't have to take those extra precautions or those extra, you know, steps. They're privileged not to have to do that. I'm going to assume that same privilege.
1: Timothy protested back in 1992 after Rodney King's brutal beating. He's trying to decide, as a leader in a top-10 engineering school, what a protest should look like for him in 2020. He's been working with his professional organizations, with his fellow faculty at USC Viterbi, but he wants to get everyone in the fight.
3: What we saw with George Floyd and what we've seen with many other cases is an affront of all of ours values and truths and beliefs and what we hold dear. It's everyone's issue. Everyone should be protesting or everyone should be seeking justice or a, a, a path towards making it more equitable and... Um, in a just society, uh, one that is not oppressive to certain others, you know, c- certain groups, uh, whatever the group may be, it's everyone's issue.
0: He wants USC Viterbi specifically to combat racism in this historic moment.
3: There's plenty of resources, uh, in terms of financial resources, to help make a change. Whether it's to hire more uh, African American or, or minority under, underrepresented minority faculty, or to provide mentoring or development of them, or, or students. This p- funding exists or can be found. What's lacking is not the financial resources, but the human resources. What's lacking, and what's, what, what the call to action is, is for all faculty to take this up as something that's dear and near to them. The faculty are the gatekeepers. they are the ones who can make a difference in terms of how do I make sure that my courses that I'm teaching are inclusive, that, that everybody in my class it, it feels comfortable to be able to raise their hands, ask questions, come to my office hours. But he does have
1: a specific message for faculty, students, alumni, and staff who want to be helpful.
3: I would say a first step that uh, someone who's interested in making a difference or change here would be to examine for themselves, articulate and come to an understanding for themselves, why is this issue important? Why does this matter? Why why should I take an action? And I believe there would be a avalanche of ideas and actions that one can then in- do once they really understand why it's important. There's actions that can be taken within their own spheres of influence, whether that's in their own community, whether it's in their own household where they're talking about issues with their family, whether it's within their church or a synagogue or other place of worship, whether it's in, you know, in their place of work, Of course, within reason, when there's open discourse and, and that's allowed, whether it's in the way they do their work, the way they interact with their professional organizations, there are ways in which their voices can be heard to be allies, advocates, aligned champions of this, even if they aren't, let's say, quote unquote, protesting, as I was saying, is my approach right now. I'm not in the streets. I may be soon, but I'm not. I'm protesting or, let's say, advocating in other ways, I think, trying to leverage my position and my sphere of influence.
0: But through it all, Timothy remains an optimist. Maybe it's NASCAR banning the Confederate flag, or maybe it has to do with his first childhood memory of systemic racism.
3: Adds to my optimism, I mentioned Gerard College earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Segregated. Don't you know that today, Girard College is like 95% African-American, and half women and half men.
0: Toward the end of our interview, Timothy takes out his handwritten notes, and he begins to read.
3: I'm optimistic, and I want to share with you one of my favorite poems uh, by Langston Hughes, entitled, I Too Sing America. It goes like this. I, too, sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes. But I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen, then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I, too, am America. Perhaps this is a point where we are ashamed of our lack of action to this point. You know, perhaps this is a point where we'll see uh, an embracing of all of America uh, and and an adoption and an affirmation of all America. Where everybody will have a seat at the table, uh, and um, and everybody will be viewed as equal and, and as one. That's that's my hope. I'm optimistic.
0: Meet Professor Stacy Finley. She leads USC Center for Computational Modeling of Cancer. So, what exactly is that?
1: Stacy and her team use computational tools to create detailed mathematical models of biological systems. In particular, to help us learn more about cancer, these mathematical simulations can actually predict how cancer will respond to new treatments.
0: So, using math to fight cancer, that's pretty cool.
1: Well, in case leading a major lab isn't enough, Stacy is also a mom to two daughters, aged 9 and 7, Jillian and Jayla, and a 14 month old son, James. Her husband, Professor James Finley, directs USC's Locomotor Control Laboratory.
0: Right now, it's story time for Stacy, Jillian, and Jayla. Stacey is reading from Little Leaders Bold Women in Black History by Vashtai Harrison. They're learning about engineer and physician Dr. Mae Jemison, the first black woman to travel into space.
2: May also wanted to be a dancer, and throughout her youth, she studied every type of dance. In college in the 1970s, May double majored in chemical engineering and African American studies. Do you know any other chemical engineers? You! you. Mommy! Yeah.
1: Stacy grew up in Kansas City. Like Timothy, she's the daughter of a pastor. Her mother worked as a teacher.
0: So Stacey and her brother spent a lot of time within the nurturing church community. And they also had to meet the strong academic expectations that came from having a teacher for a mom.
2: That shaped also my sense of community, seeing a lot of people who look like me at church. That's where I really gained a sense of understanding of what black people do and who they are and this cultural and social aspect of growing up in a community that looks very similar to me. And so I always felt uh, connected to my history, connected to my race, and definitely that was reflected in my church and in my family as well.
1: Unlike Timothy... Stacy's parents didn't feel they had to have the talk with her about how to de-escalate confrontations from white people and authority figures
0: like police. Although they did have the talk with her brother Stephen, they expected that being a young black man he'd experience the world differently to Stacy. This talk only happened after a particular frightening ride to school.
1: Imagine this. Stacy and Stephen are in the car with their dad, a pastor. A man highly respected in his community, and then those blue and red flashing lights appear in the rear view—the ever-present threat of driving while black.
2: First of all, my dad—he's an excellent driver. He never speeds. He just—that he's just a really good, really good person in general. Um, but on his car, the tail light was out. And so it had been out for a couple of days. It was like the middle of the week, and we weren't able, or he wasn't able, to fix it.
1: At first, the officer lets them go with a warning to get the taillight fixed immediately.
0: But getting same-day auto repairs is easier said than done, right? Especially when you've got a busy work life, when you have kids that need to get to school on time.
1: So the very next day, the same officer is waiting on their regular route. He sees the car and pounces pulling them over again.
2: And that's where um, I felt very scared and nervous because it was the same place, the same police officer. He knew that he had pulled my dad over the day before. And so this time he wasn't so understanding and it got... You know, my dad was not trying to escalate the situation. He was very much trying to de-escalate it and, and, um, you know, use a very calm tone, especially, you know, my brother and I were in the car as well, and so he was trying to, I think, um, just show a good example. But it's hard to do, right, when the police is very much um, antagonizing and trying to get him to respond in a very anger-driven manner. Um, and so that's one place where, you know, the police officer said not great things, um, demeaning things, uh, racist, inappropriate things.
0: Up until seventh grade, Stacey was one of maybe three black girls in her class at her parochial private school. It was a Lutheran school, so it was completely different to the church experience she had grown up with.
1: She felt that in order to fit in, she needed to code switch to make changes to the way she acted and interacted including the way she spoke. Stacy thought that if she didn't, she might stick out like a sore thumb.
2: You know, we talk differently um, and have more colloquial sayings um, when I'm around my family or around my church members. And I wanted to, especially um, at school, to show my teachers that I was very smart. I wanted to show my classmates that I was smart. And so I felt like I had to speak differently around them and not let my guard down too much.
0: Naturally, Stacy gravitated toward the other two black girls in her class. Sarah and Cynthia became her closest friends, and they bonded over their shared experiences.
1: Stacy also developed friendships outside their core group. She became well-versed in navigating the interactions with her mostly white classmates.
0: This is one of the reasons Stacy says her parents didn't feel the need to have the talk with her, because she was living it, learning to manage these interactions on her own.
2: And I would go to my parents with questions like, why are we different? Why do I have, like, especially we had a, a swim class. So that means we have to swim every single day. And that was something that was, you know, I already knew how to swim, but it was um, an interesting experience because when black people go swimming, we have to do all of this washing of our hair and it's really a process to get back into your normal clothes and get back into the classroom. And so it was like right in the middle of the day, I was so nervous about going and then everyone in the class seeing my hair and then seeing how their hair was different and trying to have these conversations. And it was uh, an experience that I would probably not want to relive.
1: At school, Stacy fell in love with Mm -hmm. science and math. She moved to a science magnet high school it was a much more diverse environment, both in terms of students and teachers.
0: Stacy gravitated toward the teachers the other kids found too strict, the ones whose homework was too hard. Stacy saw it as a challenge to win over the toughest teacher in school.
1: Her algebra teacher, Mr. May, was definitely one the other students found intimidating, but he became Stacy's role model.
2: Mr. May was very influential in me gaining more confidence and excitement about math. And I know that that played a huge role in me saying, okay, how can I do something um, or make a career out of the things that I'm good at? Uh, So that was one example where I had a really strong mentor who was also an African-American male, who was really helpful in me knowing my own abilities and getting more self-confidence in doing math.
0: As a young black woman forging her career in chemical engineering, Stacy continued seeking out the mentors and environments that could help her flourish.
1: She found an ideal place to explore her future path at Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University or FAMU. A historically black university. Here Stacy qualified for a full scholarship.
0: She also found herself in the class of Dr. Sonia Stevens. Dr. Stevens was another teacher that the other students warned her was no walk in the park. But this only made Stacey want to impress her.
2: When I went into her classroom, she was maybe six or seven months pregnant. um, And she was lecturing and I fell in love with Dr. Stevens. She was the most amazing professor, very hard, very rigorous, But I went to her office hours every time that I could, and she was very encouraging and supportive. And I saw myself in her at the front of the class, commanding this classroom, six months pregnant. And so, even though it was a really hard class, I enjoyed it, and when I, finished from FAMU, when I went to Northwestern um, and got a doctoral degree in chemical engineering, I emailed her and told her, you might not know it, but me seeing you in the front of that classroom my freshman year um, left a huge positive impression on me, and it helped me to see what was possible.
1: Florida A&M was more than just a great academic experience. It was here where Stacy met James Finley, the love of her life.
0: They launched their academic careers in tandem, following each other to Northwestern, then to USC, where Stacy started in 2013.
1: But it was at the predominantly white Northwestern University where a fellow graduate student refused to work with Stacy. He hadn't heard of her previous university, and as such, he made racist assumptions about her background.
2: He made it really clear that I couldn't join his group because he thought that I was not there to uh, contribute, but that I would only be there to take, to get answers from them and to get information from them and not to provide uh, and contribute to the study group. And so, of course, I ended up, you know, making my own study group with other people who were more inviting and welcoming.
0: But even as Stacey Rose is an emerging leader in the field, and became the head of her own center she still finds herself frustrated by situations with academic peers.
1: Many of these are implicit biases or microaggressions which when built up over time can have a significant negative impact.
2: So for example when I was talking to other faculty members at Northwestern besides my advisor and other students in my class and saying you know I think that I could go on and be a faculty member. I could be a principal investigator and run my own lab. And so some of the um, microaggressions were, well, do you really think that you can do that? It's like, well, why not? Why why couldn't I do that? Well, you don't have the the right background. There aren't many people who look like you. You would be like the only one in your department in terms of saying I would be the only African American faculty member in my department and that would be hard for me and maybe you don't have what it takes to persevere through that experience. So like microaggressions and biases like that is certainly something that I've experienced as an African-American woman in academia. Other cases or other examples are, you know, when I go to a conference and introduce myself and someone will say, oh, well, whose lab are you in? And it's, well, I'm in Stacy Finley's lab.
1: For Stacy, microaggressions like these go with the territory of being black in the ivory. The assumption from her peers That she is still in training, still completing her degree, not that she is actually the leader of a major research center.
0: Other times, academic colleagues at conferences might comment on how well and clearly she can present her science, as if this is something to be surprised by.
2: At the surface, that seems pretty benign, but underneath it, it's more coming from a place where I didn't think that people like you could do the things that you're doing. And that's the sense that I get in many different uh, circles, in many different conferences, um, in many different meetings that I just feel people think and they say in different ways that I'm not supposed to be here or that they're surprised that I am here and that it's out of the ordinary, which it is. I mean, we have to be very honest. It is out of the ordinary to have an African American faculty member with tenure in engineering, right? At USC, I am the second African American faculty member to gain tenure as far as the in in engineering as far as the um, history of the school is known. And so, they're right that it is different; it's exceptional. But that doesn't necessarily mean that um, I don't have the ability, and I don't have the right to be exactly where I am right now.
1: There is clearly much that needs to be done by all academic institutions to advance racial equity. Stacy says that those who want to be true allies need to take the time to educate themselves about the historical and political forces that create these barriers.
2: That's really where I would ask allies to start, is just to understand what are the numbers and why why are they so low? And some of that has to do with just You know, it starts early on. It starts in, you know, elementary school education. It starts uh, depending on where your family happened to live and whether it was in a good school district or a bad school district. And it's not where your family happened to live. That's also part of some of the issues with uh, the educational system in the United States is where was your family allowed to live, right? And so there's this whole history that influences where we are right now, and so I think that if there are um, people who really want to support African-Americans and people of color and increasing diversity in academia specifically, then we have to understand the history that, um, that got us to this particular place.
0: In the current climate, Stacy and her husband James are naturally worried about the safety of their children, particularly their 14-month-old son, also called James in a world where police violence against black men is still a stark reality.
1: They recently started to watch Ava DuVernay's series, When They See Us, about the wrongly imprisoned Central Park Five. Stacy and James couldn't bring themselves to finish the series. They could see their own son in the innocent protagonists.
0: As such, they haven't spoken about when they might have the talk with their son to offer him advice on how he might de-escalate confrontations as he gets older. At the moment, it's all too raw.
2: It's time to go to sleep. Ah. Right now, he's the cutest that he can be. And everyone comments on how cute and adorable and, you know, his smile just lights up the whole room. But maybe in... 11 years, they won't have those same sentiments. He's not gonna be a cute black boy. He's going to be a boy who might seem menacing and uh, threatening to other people. And that, that is hard to swallow. And I don't see in that time frame that things will change significantly enough to where I don't have to worry about his safety and don't have to worry about him going out at night in a car, maybe being pulled over by the police, or just being where he's supposed to be, in his own car.
0: For many in the Black community, the relentless cycle of distressing news following the murder of George Floyd has created a huge emotional toll. For Stacy, spending time with her family has brought her comfort.
2: I think one um, bright light is the fact that we are at home, my husband and I are at home with our children, and we get to see still their innocence. We get to see that they're still very naive, that they just enjoy being around uh, each other and being around all together as a family. And so that's something that at the end of every day, despite what happens um, work-wise or um, what happens in the news or in our community, we still can fall back on and enjoy the time that we have together.
1: For Stacy and her daughters, story time is coming to an end. The girls have some takeaways after learning about Dr. Mae Jemison.
2: So even today, people are still making history. Do you think that maybe when you get older, you'll be the first African-American woman to do something? Yeah. You think so? What do you think that might be? Um, maybe paint something or draw something. Hmm, that'd when be cool. Be an artist when I'm, when I grow up. Nice. So I just want to read one more thing to you, which is the introduction to this book. It's written by the author, and it says, "To all the women whose stories are in this book, thank you for being leaders. Thank you for being brave." Thank you for being bold. We are grateful and we are inspired. To all the leaders yet to come, big or little, like you two girls, I cannot wait to hear your stories.